17 through 24. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And let's get ready for Nick. For the word. Hey, praise be to God. As you have your seat, turn to your neighbor, ask him if they're uh, rooting for any football team this year or something. Sport ball, I don't know. Shout out, sport ball. Hey, well, it feels good to be here in the house tonight with you, my friends. And uh, fall is quickly approaching. Hence, football season, soon balloon fiesta, which for once in my life, I'm excited about. I'm excited about balloon fiesta. I usually hate the traffic, but I am ready for it this year. Uh, we got changing of seasons. The weather is going to be different soon, and we're going to have to say goodbye to summer officially, okay? I'm a big fan of summer, all right? I, know it's, I didn't know this was unpopular in New Mexico to not like summer. It's a big deal, especially this year with every day being 300 degrees. But uh, I'm going to be sad to say goodbye to summer. I'm not really looking forward to winter. Seasonal depression isn't like a vibe. You know what I mean? Like nobody, nobody likes seasonal depression. You know, Christmas, good. Yeah, that, we got that going for winter so far. Uh, you know, snowboarding, anything else, winter's mid. Okay, that's my hot take tonight. Let's pray. Just kidding. But with summer passing, there's so many beautiful things we love about summer. The weather sometimes, uh, the longer days. But one thing in particular I just see people raving about is camping in summer, okay? Because nobody wants to camp in the winter because there's snow, I guess, in the mountains. And camping is really fixed for the summer season. Now, I'm not the camping guy. Some of you are, all right? And I, I can never really get behind investing a lot of time, energy, gas money, miles on my car to just be, like, homeless for a day, okay? Like, like live-action role-playing being homeless by camping, you know? That's not really my vibe. I, I can never really get with it. If I go camping once every four years, I'm good. I am so solid. Like sleeping on the ground once e like once every four years, I, I'm sold. But recently I was actually camping, actually the second time this year. Yeah, I know, big move, big moment for me. And we were camping and I was actually with uh, my extended family, so Sky's side of the family. And I have to tell you, whenever we get together the Macedo, Shroff, Unger, Bronis combination, Things get a little rowdy, okay? Does anyone have this kind of concept on family nights at family dinner? Like, you better be ready to yell for most of the night. You can't have your feelings hurt very easily. Like, you can't be really quiet because everyone's just so intense all the time. That's like family dinner for us, all right? And we were camping, and we were making hot dogs as there's no other thing to eat while camping. It's like hot dog or a steak. You got two choices. And we're, we're grilling hot dogs, and somebody brought, like, one of those propane gas grill things. Like, I don't know. We're camping, okay? 
we, if we wanted the comforts of home, we would have stayed home, but we're in the dirt, so let's camp. You know what I mean? So there was a fire that one group set up inside the family, and then there was a gas stove another side of the family had set up. And there arose a debate within the families. Are you team fire for cooking your hot dog, or are you team gas stove for cooking your hot dog? And it got pretty controversial to the point that uh, my brother-in-law Taylor, his one of his young, one of his middle child, his his son John, who is just like the kid that says every intrusive thought we're all thinking. You know, this is what I love about children. Children are truly just unfiltered adults. Honestly, we should make politicians and businessmen children. At least they're honest. You know what I'm saying? So. John is over, and he's team stove, all right? And John propositions the question to his family. He says, Mom, Dad, what are you cooking your hot dogs with? And he said, we're cooking our hot dogs with the fire, John. He said, and that's why you're wrong. And it was powerful. It was a profound moment. Taylor turns to me and says, we're working on this right now with him. We're working on the difference between his personal preferences and the actual facts of a situation. Um, and I, I, say, I say that because it's really cute when my six-year-old nephew doesn't know the difference between preferences and reality. It's, it's kind of charming. It's like, oh, you're so sweet, and we really are saying what we're all thinking. But come on, man. It's not so cute when adults don't know the difference. It, it's not so cute as people get older, specifically in the context of a Christian community, and it seems that individuals, no matter how old they are, cannot discern the difference between what they prefer within following Jesus and what is actually asked of followers of Jesus. And more specifically, this has been an issue, and it's been an issue as old as the pages of Scripture themselves. If you want to look from Cain and Abel all the way to Paul and Barnabas, divisions within God's community has been on going problem. It's not something that is new by any stretch of the imagination, and it's not something that is so old that we can give it a moment in time. It's really a part of this thing we call the human condition. As, as humans, it seems that we know nothing better than to divide over opinions and what we prefer. And if you want to look closer within the concept of division, specifically in the context of God's community, it really boils down to two things. If you want to ever understand people dividing within the context of Christian community, it's two statements that are just subversive and against one another. The two statements are this. One side is saying, you aren't thinking about God enough, while the other side is saying, you are not experiencing God enough. It's these two questions. It's people claim that one group of people, one individual, one segment of person is not really thinking about God. They don't really know the reality, the truth of Scripture. They're not steeped in it. While the other side is saying, you do not experience, you do not know what it's like to be enamored, to be enraptured, to be in the presence of God. And it seems like these two groups are finding themselves all throughout history, all throughout any issue you can find in the church. It's most likely over this issue. If you talk about women leadership within the church, this is, this is the context. If you talk about organization of church leadership in general, if you talk about conversations around the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, structure of biblical teachings, theological framework for what's sin and what isn't sin, what outreach should look like within the church. In any context where you get people together 
who have subscribed or given their life to a person, to an idea, to a belief system, things are going to get a little tense. Things are going to get a little uh, hard within that community. Because it's not like we're all gathering here together and we're like, you know, I'm just here because I'm just team whatever. I'm just team inconsequential reality. No, no, no. The reality of following Jesus as Jesus poses it is that following him is the choice between eternal punishment and torment or life with God. So, you know, kind of high stakes, all right, just a little bit. And when this list goes on, and when we look at this tension, this, this divide, I, I truly, I, I have no desire to communicate about a broader culture or big uppercase C church context that you and I may face in other gatherings. I don't care about that. The world and other contexts can go on as they like. That doesn't concern me directly. And I think as followers of Jesus, with the age of social media, we need to get specific about what issues actually concern us, what really has nothing to do with us. I want to speak more specifically into this ministry, Collective Young Adults. I want to speak, and I want to speak from the heart posture of a shepherd tonight. Tonight isn't going to look necessarily like me entertaining and being extremely engaging for 45 minutes. I know, I'm sorry, I'm not Jerry Seinfeld. But I do believe that this conversation needs to be had within the ministry, and specifically as the shepherd of this ministry that, that I've been appointed to by Calvary Church and a call by God on my life. I, I believe it's my duty, it is my job, it is my calling to confront this. Because what I'm witnessing more and more within the ministry, within our community, is that what is happening is that we're beginning to kind of back into corners. If we are not careful, and if this issue is not confronted, we're going to end up with two different ministries. It's going to become an us versus them on a Sunday night with 100 people. And I don't desire that for that to be the case. Because God calls us to unity. And so with that in mind, I, I do believe that the faith God is calling us to have for collective young adults, for those that subscribe and ascribe their community to this space, either through connect group, through gathering here when you can. I believe this is the kind of faith God is calling to us to. It's a faith that's seasoned with grace and some salt, okay? A faith that is seasoned with grace and some salt. I think on Jesus' words, and we got a little bit of rain today, praise the Lord, okay? And as I was looking at the rain, I was thinking of that picture of Jesus with the woman at the well. And he's talking about living water. And he says, soon there will be a day where followers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. If you want to kind of get the synopsis of tonight, how do we live a balanced faith where we think through logically what it means to follow Jesus on a rational, and if you want to use a big word, epistemological level. I know, I went there. I'm not cussing. It's a real word, okay? But how do we live within experiences and embrace the mystery of who God is? And how that because that's tense. There, there's a tension there. This is something that within secularism that denies Christianity for these reasons. This is within churches, as I've stated, why churches divide, why people get upset, why people get frustrated, why why people just do away entirely with community. We have to find the balance within these things. So I'm gonna have you pre-mark three places tonight in scripture. It's gonna be Numbers chapter 11, 23 through 30. It's gonna then be 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 23. 
And then it's going to be Luke chapter 9, 49 to 50, okay? So Luke, 1 Thessalonians, and Numbers. A little Old Testament, a little new, okay? Disclaimer, as I said, this isn't going to be extremely engaging. This may feel for a little bit, a little bit more like a lecture, okay? And really the goal for tonight is to have kind of a family dinner table conversation. This isn't going to be something where if it's your first time, you'll feel very um, at home maybe, and that's okay. Maybe this is like a little flavor for you of what to expect from this kind of gathering. And with that in mind, I just want to set the table with that. Are, are you guys ready for that? Are you okay with that? Yes, like five people are okay with that. Are we okay with that? Okay, praise the Lord. I am not a hologram on stage, I know, crazy. Okay, we're going to start off tonight in the book of Numbers. And before we turn there, let me pray for us. Father, you, you instructed us long ago as to what your expectations are for your community that is set apart from the world. Father, I pray tonight that whoever we are, whatever background we are, whether we're Presbyterian, whether we're non-denominational, whether we uh, don't really come from a church background, whether that's new for us and we're just figuring faith out, wherever we are tonight, Father, that, Lord, your spirit and your truth may speak louder than any opinion. It may speak louder than any hot take. But, Lord, that you may pierce our hearts with your word and comfort and convict us by your spirit. Please use me tonight to not be a catalyst of further division or a catalyst for more divisiveness or errancy. But, Father, let me just be the vessel by which you're delivering this word through. And just use me, Lord. Use me tonight. Help any blunders or things that are not of you to be cast aside from this conversation tonight. And help me to just zero in on what you want to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Numbers chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but, not do so, but did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were enlisted among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, Stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So I've picked up a hobby recently, and this is a new addition to my long list of hobbies, if you know me. And my hobby is this, okay? It's what I do when I don't want to doom scroll or whatever on Instagram, and I'm just really bored. My current hobby is finding in the internet, the worst tattoo possible, okay? Tattoos to me are kind of a wild concept. No, I don't have any. Maybe I'll get one one day. I have no idea. No shame if you have tattoos. I just, it just baffles me. It's literally like permanent artwork on your body forever. Like, there's one thing I'm going to do forever or two things. I'm going to be married forever, and then I'm going to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. That's like the two things I, I'm cool with. Anything else that's forever, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. Tattoos, no judgment. I don't think I'm going to do it. But um, I think I have found the worst tattoo to ever exist. If this is a photo of you, 
I will repent to you after service. But drum roll, please, as we pull up the worst tattoo I think I have ever witnessed in my life. I found it today, and here it is. Let me just step out of the way. What you're seeing is real. This is not AI generated, in case you're wondering. That is a photo of Drizzy Drake from Degrassi on the body of a scorpion with an astrology Scorpio necklace. Yeah, this is new series artwork, according to Sky. I mean, she's the designer, so it's up to her. This tattoo is awful, okay? Whenever I see a tattoo like this, this person must have lost a vet. This cannot be real. I, I just cannot fathom this. Whenever I see tattoos like this, I, the, the first thing that comes to me is, what is going through your head? <laughs> For the people getting this, what could possibly going, be going through somebody's head to look at that? And that's on someone's thigh, okay? That is, that is something that is so large. That is probably bigger than my face, okay? I just have to ask, what is going through your head? And we can put Drizzy Drake away. You can look that up later for inspiration for your next tattoo, I guess. But the question of what is going through your head arises if you see a terrible tattoo. And to each his own, you know, life imitates art, whatever. I would say the statement, what is going through your head, summarizes how those of us who lean heavy into the intellectual thinking area of life feel about how some followers of Jesus come to the conclusions they do about him. That those of us who have worked diligently and who care about deep thinking, who care about ration and logic and truth, when we see how maybe some followers of Jesus come to other different conclusions, it's like, we, you, you've done the hard work. You feel as if, what is going through your head? These individuals, they, they to me, they, they stand out. These are the individuals who they don't just bring a Bible to service. They bring, like, a Bible. You know what I'm saying? Like, they got their leather-bound John MacArthur, John Piper commentary with all the Greek written out, ready to open that sucker up. Uh, they prefer, if not the original language, the NASB. Okay, 95, all right, the new 2013, too progressive. Okay, too progressive. NASB, it's accurate to the original language. And, your fa- and they say, oh, your favorite book is Psalms. Oh, that's cute. Try Revelation or Leviticus, my friend. Okay, yeah, level up. And I poke fun, and I'm just messing around. But truly, these kind of individuals, we need them within the church context. We need people who think deeply about life and truth. We need people who are the engineers, the chemists, the biologists, the philosophy majors, those who you're going in for your multiple PhD, master's, graduate program, and you're just doing it for fun at this point. It's just free for you because you got so many scholarships. Like, these are the people within this context. These are the people we need within our congregation. Now, I poke fun, and uh, if you can't take a joke tonight, I'm apologizing ahead of time. If you have any issues with that sermon, um, please email me at joshua.esquibel at calvaryabq.org. I'll, I'll answer everything. Uh, these individuals are vital to our church gathering. All jokes aside, those who, who are in a room and don't think they're the smartest person in the room, but they really are. We need those individuals in the church gathering. We need those individuals within our community. And I have to be honest, these are my favorite kind of people to talk to. I can't keep up half the time, okay? I'll have conversations with individuals, and they're cross-balancing quantum physics, the atonement of the cross, and political science in, like, one go. And I'm just like, I was left at the train stop. I have no idea where you are right now, but I love it. 
They notice patterns and can name them in scripture. They're the ones with most likely the gift of discernment in the room. They're the ones who listening to a sermon can say, oh, that's not right. Actually, I should probably have a conversation with the pastor. If that describes you tonight, if that is you, you are that individual either secretly or you're just outright available to that. Let me name something to you humbly. Let me call something out humbly to you tonight. For many of you, you've come to know God, and the way you came to know him was maybe through rules and system theories and logical conclusions. You, you wrestled with faith and contended with what truth meant and the deep intellectual parts of scripture. I want to inform you tonight that you need to be wary of something. You need, you, you need to have caution in your faith. And the caution is this. Not everything pertaining to the character of God and his actions can be rationalized through logic. Not everything pertaining to the character of God can be rationalized or sought through logic. If you try to make logic of a loving God interacting with a humanity who wants nothing to do with him, you're not going to get there. It's going to be impossible. But it doesn't just stay there. As I mentioned, Jesus' call for the woman at the well was for his followers one day to worship in spirit and in truth. And they're not exclusive, but they can work tandem together. This can be seen as a life-giving mystery, spirit, the mystery of the Holy Spirit, and the undeniable reality of the truth of God's word. For you, you've learned to lean into the undeniable reality. For you, you're not questioning the logical parts of what makes God God or what makes Jesus somebody on this earth who is real. All those things, you've leaned into that. But maybe the life-giving mystery is a little hard for you to grasp. And you almost feel like you don't belong in certain communities. You almost feel as if you're a little ostracized because you're thinking in a way that you don't sense everybody else's thinking. And it makes you feel almost othered. I don't want you to be othered tonight, my friend. But I want you to understand this. And I want to humbly challenge you with this thought tonight. Yahweh, God, did and continues to do weird stuff. The God of the Old Testament the God of the New Testament is the same God. And if you read any of this narrative, it's kind of weird, okay? All right, let me just say it tonight as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who's like a professional Christian, okay? The Bible's kind of hard sometimes to read. It's kind of strange. It is a kooky book. Okay, and we're going to get into that tonight. And I remember coming to faith and being about 15 years old and just being enamored with God's word. Like it's all I wanted to do. If it was still cool at that time, I would have worn the like not of this world, no Jesus, no peace t-shirt. That would have been me, okay. I just missed it. All right, the millennials in the room, you're like, I'm wearing it right now. For me, I, I was just on fire for the Lord. I remember just sitting in my room for hours, just tearing through the word and just getting in Romans, getting in the New Testament. And I would do this thing. I still have this Bible to this day. I would just write every single verse down in the front cover of my Bible of what correlated. I was just nerding out over scripture. And I remember being challenged by a pastor to not just read the books of the Bible that I wanted to read, but to actually read the whole canon of scripture from front to back, Genesis to Revelation. And I took him up on that challenge. And I remember starting in Genesis and being like, okay, Nephilim, kind of weird, but I can, I can hang, I guess, okay. Um, cool narrative, 
really well-written, really good just literature and really applicable truth. Great. Good stuff. Okay. Exodus. Oh, psh, Prince of Egypt. I've seen this movie. Okay. Fire. Amazing soundtrack. It's run through my head through the whole movie, like, well, through the whole book. Okay. The Michael Archangel thing. Oh, okay. We got to figure that out. But I like, the, I like this book. All right. Then I got to Leviticus, and it was a little slow. I've, I've read more about what to do with human excrement than I ever want to, again, in my life. But, hey, it's God's word. It's in there. And then I eventually picked up on, like, oh, man, like, Leviticus actually speaks a lot from the perspective of Jesus. Like, Sermon on the Mount is, like, all Leviticus. Like, this is really cool. And then I got to the book of Numbers. And spoiler alert, there's a lot of Numbers. There's a lot of counting in the book of Numbers. The first couple chapters is literally just naming people and how many people were part of the people. And I put my Bible down for a month, okay? I did not read my Bible for it a whole bit. I said, I'm actually going to actually grasp with my faith and contend. I'm just kidding. But I, I really had a hard time because what the heck is the purpose of this? Eventually, I kept reading, and I got to the more easier-to-follow parts for a modern audience, and Holy Spirit is using that and speaking to me in that moment, even using the hard parts to just reveal his truth. That's what he does. And even being an active faith more a little bit less than 10 years now, as I admitted, the Old Testament's weird. The Old Testament's really strange. It's, it's honestly hard at times to contend the God of the Old Testament with the Jesus of the New Testament. And many people at first glance, they read the New Testament, and it's like, oh, God, he's like Birkenstock wearing and hummus loving, and he's just like the guy, okay? He probably had long hair and like just hung out with everybody. And then the Old Testament is like, I want you to kill all of the Amalekites because they're a scourge to me, and uh, just do that, okay, Saul? And you're just like, whoa, I thought genocide wasn't cool. Okay, what? It, it can be weird. It can be tension-filled. But with that, specifically in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the Old Testament, Ruach Adonai, the Spirit of God, it can feel like there's some more tension there. The Holy Spirit of the New Testament that Jesus talks about and Paul talks about feels a little different than the Old Testament Spirit of God. And now we understand, as Hebrews informs us, that God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when we look at passages like this, it, it can feel a little bit strange to read about Spirit of God. And Paul isn't talking in this language. Nobody else is informing us of what this is. And we can't say theologically it's a different spirit. Nuh-uh, my friends. That is not in the rules. People try to explain away the works of the Spirit in the Old Testament. And they even kind of categorize Old Testament, New Testament, present day. It's kind of all different. And you hear things like uh, people experience the spirit in different ways because they had more faith. That's why the sun stopped. That's why Elijah called down fire from heaven. That's why Pentecost happened. That's why in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira were literally struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. It's actually claimed as a, as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And a youth group carries out their body. Okay, imagine that for youth group activity. Okay. Oh, it's a different time period. Things have changed. God did it then because he had to, and, and he's just working with what he has. You know, and scholars contend and agree and disagree about all this stuff all the time, okay? And I'm not here to really get into the nitty-gritty details of that. But when I do read these scholars and when I do read the full canon of Scripture, I would say this. This is the simple conclusion of why the Spirit of God moves differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's this. 
same spirit, different manifestations. Okay, if that's a weird word for you, let me put it another way. The ethics and the character of God never change, but how he makes himself known is always different, new, and creative. Okay? God's ethics and his character, they never change. But the way in which he's unveiling himself to humanity, he gets creative with it. He does new things. He does the same thing in a new way. Is that making sense? Okay? Like, God is the most creative being to ever exist. Fair? Yeah? Okay? Like, pizza? All right? I don't know if you knew that. He's creative. And if you read the Old Testament to the New Testament, God rarely did the same thing the same way. He would do similar things, but he would do them in different ways. I believe the book of Judges is proof of this. If you look at the life of Gideon to Deborah to Samson, it's all different. It's all different things, but it's all accomplishing the same goal. And the grand conclusion of why God does this is he is always prioritizing bringing glory to himself. Okay? God is always putting priority to bringing glory to himself. So he says, okay, if parting the Red Sea through Moses is what it takes to bring glory to me, that's what we're going to do. Okay, if parting the Jordan River and asking them to step in it before it gets parted is me bringing glory to myself, just to say, yeah, I did that. That's what he does because he's God. He's perfect. And this is how he makes himself known and his name known to his people from Genesis to Revelation. He is the resolve. He is the answer humanity longs for. And this is how he makes himself evident in these different ways. Now, he's not going to operate in the boxes you and I construct for him. God's doing things outside the box, my friend. He is always doing things outside the box. Is God a God of order? Yes. Scripture confirms that in 1 Corinthians. And that worship and dedication to him, it shouldn't mirror chaos. It, it, it shouldn't mirror the enemy's tactic. Like Sailor was talking about confusion, death, chaos. This isn't how God operates. God follows order. But here's the catch, and thing, something I don't think people grasp or, or think on long enough. God follows his order, okay? God isn't following a societal construct or idea or method or theory of an order. He has his own way. I don't know if you've discovered this. God has his own way of doing things. This is why Jesus, at multiple points in his ministry, presents a subversive and contrary idea of what it means to follow him and what it means to be a person that follows God. And people would walk away. People by the thousands would walk away from following Jesus because it was just too weird for them. It, it was too outside the box. At one point he says, you're going to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And then everybody stops following him and only like the 12 are left. And it's these moments that God does things how he likes to do them. And he has a subversive order than what we expect. And God is orderly, but we cannot expect him to always work within our own personal preferences of what order looks like. Simple framework in a box isn't really God's style. Reminds me of the line from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read that beautiful book by C.S. Lewis. And when uh, Lucy is asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who is kind of this caricature of God, it says this, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's God. 
He's the king. It's like, gives me me chills reading that line. Where we land in the book of Numbers tonight is this. The children of Israel, specifically Moses' mentee Joshua, they've put God in a box. They said, this is who's designated, who is here to receive your spirit. Anybody else is disqualified. I'm going to put my theology hat on really quick. Maybe you're like, I thought it's been on. Okay, you just got to buckle up, okay? We're going to get into a little bit of what's called pneumatology, which is theology of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to understand the Old Testament Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, really quickly, God's Spirit of the Old Testament, every time it's referenced, is Ruach Adonai, and it's God, uh, breath of God. And it would empower people for ministry. As you read, it says he put his spirit on Moses, but it wouldn't dwell with people. This is why Moses laments, I wish everybody had the spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody, but not dwelling internally within them. And so God, and this is why David in the Psalms, he says, please do not take your spirit from me. It was a real reality for David. This is why Samuel actually prophesies, uh, not Samuel, uh, Saul prophesies in 1 Samuel, because the spirit of God comes upon him. And he walks around naked and prophesies for a couple days, okay? How about that for an event to go to? Okay, so Holy Spirit of the Old Testament, Ruach Adonai, and Ruach, that word, isn't like a breath like, okay? It's, it's like an asthmatic, deep, powerful breath. Every time God's spirit is mentioned, that word Ruach is uh, accompanied there. That's what the word is. Holy Spirit of the New Testament is a different word. It's parakletos, okay? I'm probably saying that wrong. Some of you are the thinkers, you're like, your Greek is terrible, but... Parakletos, or paraclete, is helper, advocate, or intercessor, okay? And this is what Jesus promises at John 15. It dwells within a believer at the moment of salvation to empower them in ability and conviction to perform ministry, okay? It's your helper, and it dwells with everybody who trusts Jesus. It's no longer this system of, hopefully you're a a priest, a prophet, or a king, and then I'll choose you. It's a system of, oh, you've decided to give your life to the ultimate priest, prophet, king, so you get it. Okay? Makes sense? God only graced Moses with his presence, and he has to take a little bit, some of that anointing juice, okay? And he has to parcel it out to these other elders. Others catch a little bit of that Holy Spirit sauce. They start prophesying, says they never do it again. And the order that the children of Israel have expected is being subverted. It's going against what they've come to know to be true about God. And more people prophesy than originally expected. Some feathers get ruffled. And Moses simply responds with this super insane line. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord put his spirit on them. What a profound statement. He says, why are you so mad that God is being glorified? I wish more people would glorify God. Now, God's tactic and method adjusted for the new covenant still remains. It has been shifted a little bit in what it looks like, but the ethic remains. God is on the move, and he is using unprecedented people and methods to make his glory known. God's on the move, my friends, and he's using people that don't always make the cut as to what we'd expect to be used by God for moves of his spirit. Is God's name made known, and is he glorified? This is the question we must ask Anytime a move of God or the Holy Spirit being in a room or this language you hear is being cited, is God being glorified? Because if God isn't being glorified and his name being made known greater, it's just emotions and feeling. It's just emotions and feeling if at the end of the day we're not pointed to the truth of the only truth that can save us and do anything for us. 
that humanity is depraved and we need the solution of the Savior. Anything else is just emotion. And it's going to get uncomfortable for those of us who are used to sitting in the intellect, who like thinking about God, stepping into the mystery of what it means to trust and have a deeper faith with God. And if you're still weary of mystery, if, if you're still kind of confused or feeling a little bit apprehensive, let me read to you what Jalen read. And let me jump to uh, verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And see, Paul is calling out this Corinthian church because the spirit of God has been moving within their church. It's where this book, these two books is where Paul really drills down on spiritual gifts. Obviously, God's moving, but they're struggling with immorality. They, they have all these spiritual gifts. They know God's real, but they can't stop sleeping around. They, they can't stop drilling down on what Jesus and the ethic and the truth of what he's called them to. And he points out two groups. The Jews, those of who are always looking for a sign, think of the words of Jesus, woe to the generation that is looking for a sign. And then the Greeks, so they're looking for a move of God. They're looking for something miraculous. And I think we can be tempted to do this in moments of worship where we're talking about healing. We can be tempted to look for this in moments where we need a word, we need an exhortation, we need a prophetic moment. Don't just chase the sign. Don't just chase the miraculous. But don't also just rely on God to make perfect sense. Don't just rely on ration and logic, which is actually how we understand the West, derived from more Aristotle than Jesus. Okay, hot take. But don't rely on just one thought pool. Or just one experience to build the entire foundation of your faith. He's challenging both. So shifting gears, okay, a little early, but we're, we're getting into the New Testament and the words of Paul here. So we're transitioning out of Old Testament theology and pneumatology, and we're getting into the words of Paul and application for the modern church today. Paul is communicating to this early church. Culture wants reason for God. Religious people want proof of Jesus. And you're not going to get both. You're not going to get both 100% satisfied through human reasoning. God isn't against those things. God isn't against showing up in the miraculous. He's done it before. He'll do it again. He gets glorified through it. And he's not against knowledge. Don't mishear me time, my friends. God wants you in his community. God has gifted you with a certain brain, a certain ability to process things that we need within Christian community. And in case... You're jumping to the conclusion of reading Paul's words as, well, Paul is, Paul is a little simple-minded. Paul's able to embrace the mysterious and not rely 100% on knowledge and vice versa because he's a little simple. You know, us modern Westerners, we know so much, okay? Have you seen the Tesla? Do you know of AI? Paul is simple. Okay, I'll take you up on that. Let's do a quick poll here, friends, okay? Um, anyone in here memorize the entire Old Testament in the original languages and can recite it right now? Cool. Check. Paul 1, us 0. Anyone here invent new Greek words and constructs to help the masses understand deeper truths of the gospel? Okay. Number 2, Paul 2, us 0. Okay. 
Paul was a genius, my friends. Paul was as intellectual as it got. He was just a rare gift to God's earth. He could argue at the Areopagus at Acts 17, but also get into the intense, mysterious faith of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. If Paul was the genius he was, and he surrendered himself in truth to the Spirit of God and the mystery of it, we have no excuse. We have no excuse. And practically, you may be thinking tonight here as somebody who thinks very heavily, how do I do that though? How do I surrender myself to God's mystery? Do I go run naked through the streets and try to prophesy or something? Please don't do that, okay? Um, unless you want to start a prison ministry, then you can do that. Okay, real, real talk. I don't know. Maybe God will use it. He'll use all things. That's what scripture tells us. Probably shouldn't do that, though. I, I want you to have a good future, okay? I think you should look to the life and the lifestyle of Jesus. Simply. If, if you're like, no, I'm not ready to, like, like, start praying and just, like, seeking God's face in this certain way. Just look to the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is boiled down to a few simple things. Jesus sought after a life of silence and solitude. He separated from the crowds, and he sought the face of the Father. So prayer. Prayer in silence and solitude. Okay, not prayer and distraction, everything going on. Jesus fasted. Jesus prayed to the Father. And so if you're in this thinking area and you're having a hard time encountering the mystery of the Spirit... I want to challenge you, live a life like Jesus lived. Practice simplicity. Pa practice being a little bit silent every now and then. For the introverts, you're like, oh, done deal. Okay, I'm there. Right? Like, like practice like, I'm not going to have worship music and all these things, and I'm with you, okay? For those of us in this space tonight that are kind of a hard time focusing and, and, and really worshiping God with a lot of noise and lights, I have a confession to make, okay? My deepest encounters with Holy Spirit has not been in a four-song worship set. That's just me, okay? No shame to the worship team. No shame to those who have experienced that. The places I've encountered God the deepest and seen his face the most, lying face down on the floor with no music on. That's where I've, I've just seen him work in my life, give answers to prayer, show me his truth, give me verses of scripture. That's where I encounter God. And so you want to lean into the mystery, look to the life of Jesus. Mirror that in your own life. I guarantee you God will, re will reveal himself may look different than what you're expecting or used to, or may look like much of the same. It's who he is. And so that's great and all, but many of us tonight, you, you may say, okay, Nick, I'm not a thinker, though. I, I'm not over here wrestling and grasping with these deep truths. I'm not over here trying to develop a deeper reality. I simply know Jesus is Lord. I've encountered him in such a specific way that I can't deny his existence and place in my life. And I, I just, I'm not there. And that's okay. See, when we find ourselves in this place where we're lacking in the thinking side, I'd say there tends to be an issue, though, with that. There tends to be an issue with only relying on experience. An issue is what I like to call the George Strait problem, okay? I technically don't call it that, but tonight I do because I felt like it, okay? The George Strait problem, let me explain. George Strait, if, if you're not a country fan, is one of the greatest of all time, okay, when country was good, all right, not contemporary country. Okay, that's my, that's my, hey, I have the mic, you don't, all right, so take that. And he released this hit song in 1984, and I was on the B-side of this album, and it became a single, and the title of the song is All My Exes Live in Texas. Phenomenal, okay, great song, great bop, relatable, just kidding. Um, if you aren't aware of this song, I'm sorry, man. It, it is like, it feels a little close to worship. Just kidding. It doesn't. Do not. I am totally joking. Um, 
if you don't know this song, all jokes aside, uh, it really follows this narrative from this author and this writer, George Strait, about how he had a lot of problems in Texas, and he grew up in Texas, and all his girlfriends are from Texas, but he broke up with all of them, and he goes through the list of all the reasons, and then now he, he moved to a different state, and so all his problems are behind him, and he's ready to start new. That's like the premise of the song, really philosophical, okay? His past is behind him in this song. The, the things that we can relate to in life are broad. We can relate to something being behind us. You may not have excess in Texas, but you can relate to moving on in life and leaving something somewhere. Maybe it is excess. Okay, good for you. Um, you don't stalk them on Instagram. But for most followers of Jesus, I find that they're not struggling with leaving excess in Texas, but what they are struggling upon is not knowing where their brain is. Okay? You may not know where your exes are, but you should know where your brain is. Seriously. There's some of us sitting here tonight that we have not thought and wrestled and contended with the truth and why scripture is true enough. Let me take you to 1 Thessalonians, and don't say, I don't know where that is, because I told you to mark it. And that's okay, it'll be up on the screen. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, rejoice always, pray continually. So do, do all the beautiful things of embracing the mystery, but give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So he's calling out things that are just emotion, just feeling based. And then he's calling out things that rejecting evil, rejecting things that obviously go against the character of God, despite what we feel. Verse 43, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is challenging this church, and I believe this is for our context as well as New Testament believers. And telling them, hey, you have no problem leaning into the mystery of how God shows up and the way he shows up. But make sure you are testing each experience with the truth of God. Not taking your experience as the guarantee of God's promise. And I see this all the time in faith. I, I see this particularly within our context. For those of us who may be a little bit newer to faith or you're just kind of newer to life. You're just kind of trying to get your career rolled out. You're trying to figure out what you were made for. You're trying to figure out where you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to be doing. And, and I see a lot of different ways this makes itself evident. All the way from choosing to break off ties to a church, starting or ending a relationship, moving states, starting careers, all the way from what seems like simple things like that, all the way to intense things like justifying personal sin and habitual sin. And it goes something like this, okay? I'm pretty young to be a pastor. I was like 12. Just kidding. I was not 12 when I decided to be a pastor. I was like 14. No, I'm just playing with you. But I'm pretty young, but I've been doing a little bit of this pastoring thing, shepherding people, count biblical counseling for a little bit. And, and I've been around long enough, not very long, but kind of proves this point to see this, this same formula work itself out over and over and over again in people's lives. People say, God's really leading me to blank. Move states, start a new career, break up with somebody, start a relationship, whatever the thing is, okay? And I ask pastorally, oh, wow, how did he give you confirmation? Them, well, he just told me. Hmm, me, didn't he ask you to be faithful to blank six months ago? 
Didn't he ask you to stay in that career? Didn't he ask you to not get back with that person? Didn't he ask you to quit that thing? The response, they'll appropriate a verse. They'll say, oh, well, Psalm says he knows the desires of my heart. Maybe pepper in a little Jeremiah 29, 11. Maybe a little bit of Joshua, the soles of my feet, wherever they go, God may bless. But friends, hear me tonight, okay? God doesn't take lightly you assuming his stamp of approval on your emotion-led decisions, okay? I'm going to say that one more time. It's got real quiet in here, and that's okay. God doesn't take lightly you assuming his stamp of approval on your emotion-led decisions. New Testament tells us all the time, God will not be mocked. Whoa, that like, like God's not going to be mocked. He is only comfortable with being the leader in any situation that his name is a part of, okay? He, he is not comfortable being the caboose of your journey. He, he is not comfortable taking the backseat of whatever purpose you have called yourself to. That's not how he rolls. He doesn't care for that. If you want to see God move in your life, bless your plans, be someone who desires his truth and the fruits of the spirit. Be someone who chases down God's truth through his word. And what will follow is the development of the character of Jesus known as the fruits of the spirit. If, if you don't know what the fruits of the spirit are, look in the end of Galatians. And the fruits of the spirit simply, it's just the character of Jesus. Patience. All these different things that long-suffering, endurance, all these areas that the fruits of the spirit are a way in which we know that God is making himself known and working through and leading someone's life. Anytime we are desiring to be used by God naturally via the gifting he's made us be born with, maybe really good at something naturally, not gifted supernaturally, and we want to pursue a calling with where he's gifted us, or supernaturally where we've been blessed by the Holy Spirit with gifts of the Spirit, and I hate to tell you, I'm not a cessationist. I believe the gifts are all applicable and for the church today. It's in the book, it says that, doesn't say otherwise. Without the character of Jesus to back up how God is moving through us, okay, hear me, people will get hurt in your life, and you will hurt yourself. If you are not operating based upon the truth of God and looking to the character of Jesus, you will hurt people and yourself by acting rashly. We need to balance the power and the calling God has placed on our life with the standard he has set before us in Jesus. This is just what holiness is, being set apart, not looking like everybody else. Being set apart and pursuing his idea of what it means to be human, not what society thinks it means to be human, not what our own ideas mean it thinks to be human, but what he thinks to be human. There is no more frustrating experience in faith than witnessing those who operate in hypocrisy. Because if you're trying to move in a move of God or the call of God, but you have not taken the time to develop the character of Jesus, to be able to withstand and hold on to the gifts he's given you via the Holy Spirit, you're going to be crushed under the weight of it. Followers of Jesus will acclaim to have been just witnessing a move of God. They'll, they'll acclaim that, oh, God just moved so powerfully in worship tonight. They'll, they'll just sit in a connect group and say, oh, man, like this was such a good start study. God spoke to me. And then they'll go and gossip about people that they just worshiped with at the table of dinner. They'll then speak highly of God's community, but then treat his gatherings like a Tinder hookup spot. 
And what begins to happen is we desire the things of God, but we have not taken the time to look to the character of God. And so it's just a transactional relationship. And soon, God will not be a part of what he has not blessed, okay? And it's time for some of us to develop a deeper knowledge and become better informed of what God expects of us. It's time for us to not just live by experience and emotional high after emotional high, Holy Ghost gooseys, okay? It's time for us to really develop what does it mean to understand the word of God. And and if you're stuck there tonight, please hear me. Again, you may say, Nick, I hear you, dude. I want to be there, but I just don't have that kind of brain. I didn't have the privilege of being able to grow up in private school and be trained in these different things. My parents, my, my single mom didn't have time to homeschool me. I had to go to a public school. I, I wasn't raised in this way to think like this. I, I didn't go to school. It was too much for me. Please hear me tonight. I'm not asking you to be the next A.W. Tozer, my friend. I'm not asking you to write a systematic theology on the entire New Testament, all right? Some people have been blessed to do that, all right? Others of us, okay, myself included, not so much. I'm cool with that. If you want to develop your thinking better about what it means to know the truth of God, you have to become really good at asking questions. Become really good at asking questions. See, the best question askers develop a way of how to think versus people who are always relying on others to tell them what to think. If you develop a a mindset that is not critical, but a mindset that's always willing to ask, what do you mean by that? Great question, by the way, if you're ever in an argument. What do you mean by that? Oh, my gosh, you will look like the apologist extraordinaire, all right? What do you mean by that? When, when you see an experience or someone is expressing something, you can ask, hey, where in Scripture is that the case? Can you point me to that? And not like, yeah, NIV, baby, where's in Scripture? You want me to open up? Okay, yeah, nope. Hey, we're both believers. We're both contending in the faith. Let's go, let's go to the authority. Where's in Scripture? We have to ask questions, and if you're not willing to ask questions, your faith will fall apart. Okay, so it feels really good for the past, I don't know, 40 minutes to just have solved all the division in the church. I feel really good about myself for that, okay, so we can just like go home and pray it out or whatever, right? Just kidding. These these are real issues. These these are not simply solved in a 45-minute sermon. Okay. So concluding tonight, and we're drawing to the conclusion, preacher talk, 20 more minutes, okay? You got, you, you can do it, all right? Are you still with me? Okay, praise the Lord. If not, you'll eat afterwards, and you'll move on with your life, all right? Here's the tension. Okay, I, I'm not leaning into just experience. I've developed a real rational faith. Other side, I've developed a real rational faith. I can think through things, um, but I, I'm also okay with leaning into mystery. I don't have it all figured out, okay? I have a 10-pound brain, maybe 11-pounder if you're really smart. But that's it, okay? I understand. I'm finite. Great. But what happens when, as believers, we still can't agree on terms? We both are convinced, and we both are balanced, quote-unquote, but we still find that we're Bible-believing Christians who can go to the Word, and we disagree, though, on everything, Okay? This is why, I don't know if you've recognized this, like denominations exist, okay? Like this is why people are like, I'm team Presbyterian or I'm team whatever, whatever. And like people are like, I cannot believe he is a Calvinist. I can never, I cannot believe he's an Arminius. It just, it never ends. And these are people from both sides of the aisle who are Jesus-fearing, 
God-loving, Bible-believing Christians who are intelligent and have experience under their belt, but they seem to just not disagree, or they seem to just not agree. I think there's no better way to understand this issue than to look to the words of Jesus. Last verse for tonight, Luke chapter 9, 49 to 50, says this, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he is not one of us. Jesus responds, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Whoever is not against you is for you. Paul will reciprocate this later on in Philippians 1.18, that he pretty much says, I don't care how someone goes about it, as long as the gospel is being preached and Christ crucifies at the center, we're good. So we must ask the question in conclusion tonight, we need to find out who is and isn't for us. I don't know if you've been around faith long enough yet, not everyone's stoked on you being a follower of Jesus. There's some people who are not for you, but then it can get confusing when there's tension within a church context where we're supposed to be for each other, but we feel against each other. And what I believe at the core of this is, is there's been a belief amidst all of humanity for centuries that I believe has come from the garden scene when sin entered the earth, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. And it's this belief, there is more about us that is different than we have in common. If you boil down any issue in the human condition, it's saying, you and I, we're more different than we could ever be similar. As Christians, we're just as guilty of this, though. How do we know who is orthodox? How do we know who is for us? There's so much bad TikTok theology out there. How do I know what's true? This person's claiming he has glasses on and he has a coat and he's saying, you know, the original word doesn't mean this. Actually, it really does, right? Okay. What is the stuff that matters for us as followers of Jesus? I believe Dr. Gary Brashears at Western Seminary has studied this really well and has actually compiled a list of how we kind of compartmentalize what is essential doctrine, the stuff that matters, what is non-essential doctrine. And it goes like this. He boils down the fit into four categories. Things to die for. So think the cross, regeneration, sin, justification, authority of scripture on those lines. Things that you would be willing to be persecuted and martyred for believing, and it's contrary to culture. The second is this, divide for. And you think of the story of Paul and Barnabas, as I mentioned at the beginning of Scripture. If you have not read that portion of Scripture, I encourage you to do so. Paul and Barnabas part ways because one of them believes a person should be coming on their missionary journey, and the other doesn't. And he says, we're going to go two different ways, and they divide. They're still siblings. They're still brothers in Christ. There's no claim of heresy. It's just that they're not playing on the same field. Then the third is debate for and think music styles. Some of you say, man, I really wish we did more hymns. Some of you say, man, I wish we did more of whatever contemporary band is up right now. I don't know. Some of you say, man, I can't believe they have keys on stage and a screen on stage and all these things on stage. You know, church should just be simple. Stained glass, baby, which I'm kind of a proponent for. But these are things like, uh, you know, de sermon delivery. Some of you are like, man, this guy's been talking for pretty much an hour, and I want to die. Like, sermon should be 15 minutes. Give me six points. Give me practicals. Give me application, and let me be on my way. Some of you think young adult ministry, it should be connect group. Connect group for hours. We just need to get into connect group. We just need to connect. Some of you think, I just don't know what I'm doing with my faith, and I need more instruction. Please instruct me more. There's so many things that we just disagree on, and these aren't things to even uh, divide over or even claim somebody's heretical over, but it's just things we debate. There's nothing wrong with debate. And in our modern day and age, we're kind of a little afraid of confrontation. 
We're kind of a little afraid of asking people, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that to be true? Why do you believe this to be the right way? We try to smooth this over by being people-pleasing when there's some things we should actually debate for. And the fourth is de- decide for, and this is what he says. These are the kinds of issues addressed in Romans 14 to 15. The areas of belief and behavior about which there is no law. This is where acceptance is a virtue and legalism is a danger. Especially as divisive people latch onto lower level issues, raising them into foolish controversies. So think of Paul warning against that to, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 of avoid foolish controversies. Even Paul going to an extent in a later part of scripture saying uh, avoid worldly philosophy. It's a waste of time. And so in conclusion tonight, I want to end with a story I actually heard this week that left such a mark on me that I believe ties this together, holds this intention perfectly. Because we could go all night about how to think better, how to have more intricate experience, and how to lean into mystery, have better faith. But the story I heard really left an imprint on me. And I heard it on this podcast with this pastor and leader by the name of Erwin McManus. And he was talking about when he first came to faith. He's about 65 now. When he first came to faith, he felt like he was supposed to be the most snarkiest, most critically thinking, most apologetic in the sense of just always questioning people, believer there is to be. That he believed himself to always be challenging others. And then one night, he sat down with this revered veteran pastor that was twice his age. He was 20 at the time. And he said in this interview that he was asking this pastor question after question. He could tell the pastor was having a little bit of a hard time. He could tell that with each question about science and faith and belief and theology, that the pastor was getting slower and slower in his response and not as sharp. And then at one moment in the conversation, the pastor informs him of this. He said this to him. Erwin, I will never be as smart as you, but I know something to be true. I can't answer your question, but this is what I know to be true. I know that I love you, and Jesus has changed my life, and I love him. In this interview, I just got chills watching him, the the, the conviction of him sharing this. And he said, at that moment, if there was two people left on earth, and it was him and myself, I'd want to be him. And he said, I decided at that moment to not be the person in the room that knows the most, but that loves people the best. That doesn't know the most, but loves people the best. This is why all throughout the pages of the New Testament, talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about truth, talking about the Pharisees, all these things, Jesus and the New Testament writers always come back to, but the greatest of them all is love. Love not as society defines it, Love not as Western thought or certain ethics define it, but as the life of Jesus defines it. And Jesus informs us, greater love has no one than this, that one may lay down his life for his friends. I believe in tonight, some of us need to lay some things down in our life. For the love of God and for the love of others, and even just for the sake of our own future with him. That we are holding on to pretentiousness, And some of us are holding on to emotion. Some of us are holding on to disobedience. And it's prohibiting you from being able to love well. And so in conclusion tonight, to wrap it all up, I just want to ask the question for you. Where do you need to love better? Where is the love lacking in your life? Some of us, we need a little more grace. We need a little bit more of that heart posture that that pastor had, and we need to say, hey, I understand. Not everybody has the brain I do. But others of us, we need a little bit more salt. 
We've lost a little bit of our flavor. We've lost a little bit of the truth and the conviction of what the gospel is, and we've watered it down for some relatable, broad truth that just is nuanced and really doesn't hurt people at all. We, we need some salt in our faith. And so I want to pose to you tonight, where are you needing the addition? Salt or grace? Let's stand and pray. Father, you know what we need. You work all things together for the good of those that love you. Lord, that a lot of this at surface level seems like rhetoric or it seems like talk, but it really boils down to trauma and, ex- and things we've experienced and the homes we were raised in, the parents we did or didn't have. It all forms us. So, Lord, I pray that you do what you do best tonight, that you show up in the way within which we may not expect you to show up to convict or to comfort us, Father. Lord, some of us are walking in shame and guilt for something that happened 10 years ago, and we need your comfort. Others of us, Lord, and only you can judge the intentions of our heart. Others of us are holding on to a sinful lifestyle that is tearing away at our faith and the fiber of our soul. And we need to be convicted by you tonight. Help us to be limited from distraction. Help us to be limited from voices outside, but just lean into what your voice has to say. Not what we want you to say or what we think you would say, but what you're truly saying, Father. Lord, we just humbly submit ourselves to you tonight and humbly request these things, Lord. You don't have to do a thing of it for us. You've already died for us, and that's enough, Jesus. But you tell us to ask, and so we ask earnestly. We, we want to hear from you tonight, Lord. So speak to us now. Let me pray. Amen.